0: Hello, everybody. It's Dan Woods here at the Early Adopter Podcast at RSA 2019. I'm with Tim Mackey, the Senior Technology Evangelist at Software Integrity, a division of Synopsys. And we're going to be talking about our three primary questions today uh, that we've been asking all of the cybersecurity experts that we've been talking to. But before we get to those questions, I want to make sure you understand where Tim is coming from. And I've asked him to explain Software Integrity's uh, product and its capabilities in relation to the NIST uh, framework for cybersecurity, the one that includes identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. So could you explain those uh, to get us started so people know where you're coming from?
1: Sure thing, Dan. So uh, the Software Integrity Group isn't a single product, it's not a single uh, service. Um, It's something that we uh, created through acquisition uh, five years ago when Synopsys acquired Coverity, which is a static analysis tool. And over the intervening years, we've acquired a number of tools that fill out the portfolio of tooling that you would expect to have if you're on the development side of the equation. And some of those tools have applicability on the operations side as well. In addition to that, uh, we have a series of services that allow organizations to recognize when they are, uh, say, a little behind the curve, a little behind where they want to be, and move themselves forward. So effectively, we're in a position where we can identify the types of vulnerabilities that might be created within the development stream. Uh, Provide uh, e-learning and training and tutorials uh, to assist developers in doing a better job of recognizing their coding patterns and how that can be improved from a security posture. Uh, Building in uh, dynamic and protocol fuzzing capabilities. So if you're down the path of an IoT solution, you can look at the entire full stack of what's being prepared, not just the code that you're writing. Um, Doing some interactive application analysis so we can embed ourselves in profilable languages and recognize whether or not the code being created is in fact something that is going to be more vulnerable or not and then put an overlay on that from just a product perspective of what Gartner likes to call software composition analysis but was really an open source risk management perspective what is your exposure to third-party dependencies and the risks that might come in as a result of a developer making a, ch- a choice around, say, this library or that library.
0: I see, so we have all sorts of references to other products you know, that provide related capabilities, it's just you collect them all. Correct. It's sort of like, uh, if we were doing this like, is this diehard on a boat, it would be more like, is this contrast, signal sciences, and um, black duck.
1: On a boat. And Black Duck's a perfect example because uh, Black Duck is a uh, company's solution that Synopsys acquired a little over uh, a year ago to solve the open source governance perspective. Right, So it is Black Duck on a boat. It is is quite literally Black Duck on a boat. There you you Um, go. Okay. So, uh, and, and, and where we stop is on the network security side. So we're not going to be the perimeter edge defense solution. Uh, we complement those very, very nicely by being able to say, you know what, operations team, defensive teams, this is what you actually have in terms of uh, the vulnerabilities, the composition, the structure, the architecture, whatever adjective you want to use, around that software stack and by extension, if you're not doing continuous monitoring for issues present there, then you're going to be expending a lot of defensive energy protecting against things that simply aren't vulnerable in your environment.
0: Got it, got it. So. Um I get it. So you, the idea is you can understand the quality and nature of your attack surface exactly uh, based on a deep ac- application analysis
1: exactly. And then from a services perspective, we can bring in uh, pen testing and threat modeling and red teams and so forth to oh, be so able to, get, get uh, to facilitate. We get
0: to Hacker One and Crowd, uh, Crowd, whatever it's called.
1: Uh, yeah. Is crowd- that Crowd CrowdStrike?
0: No, no. There was a, crowd, a bug. Uh, there was some pen testing thing that had Crowd in it, Bug Crowd or something like that. Anyway, so this is good. I'm getting it. So. Um, I have three questions that I want to have you put your kind of cybersecurity thinker on because they're not related solely to your product area, but mm-hmm. they're, they're, but I'm sure you've had to think about them. Um, one of the things I'm trying to get at is, you know, people are hearing a lot about the idea of zero trust. And the, when you think about it and when you, when you hear what's, what's happened, you think about this world in which the perimeter is no longer there. You know, and that, that zero trust means that every entity in, in the system is sort of... Uh, protected uh, uh, has a, has a, uh, an umbrella of protection around it, and that firewall that kind of created this trust space no longer is needed because we have all the points in uh, in the network are connected are, are protected. But it turns out that that's not really the case. And when when you look at a hybrid world, you know zero trust uh, 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 is going to be implemented inside of perimeters. People are going to implement zero trust capabilities inside of perimeters, and that same. Uh, trust, you know, mechanisms will be used when people move outside of that that, that perimeter. I like the what the the um, the uh, Cisco uh, uh, presenter about the IoT said uh, outside of the carpeted space. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a good way of describing the difference between the inside and outside. So, what do you think zero trust is going to mean for most companies? Is it just going to be better, you know, individual authentication, or do you think that people will really uh, do something that actually creates better segmentation, better, you know, uh, uh, adaptive protection uh, based on what they know about whoever's identifying themselves.
1: So the way I look at it is, for years, decades, we've been trying to build bigger, better, bolder, stronger, faster, whatever you want to call it, uh, perimeters, and yet the breaches keep happening and the uh, attacks keep coming in, and there's all various vectors in which they occur, but fundamentally what's missing in the entire equation is what's the value of the asset that someone's trying to compromise? Are they trying to compromise the corporate entity, or are they trying to uh, exfiltrate some data from within that corporation? Um, And what is the vector around it? From a zero-trust perspective, I liken it to I want to make certain that I know that you have an authorization to access this type of information at this point in time from this location. And so uh, if we look back say 10 years ago at the uh, impetus behind bring your own devices to corporate America, you had these lovely iPads and Android devices that were being brought in, and they didn't really have a security model that was consistent with how a laptop or a desktop might have been secured. And so that for me was really the genesis around, how do I actually create a zero trust model within an organization? And when you start getting all of the IoT devices that everyone likes, all the sensors, all the connected cameras, and uh, conference room monitors, and so forth, Effectively, what you're saying is that there needs to be a clear understanding of what that data is. And so for me, the starting point is, what exactly- clear understanding
0: of the data on the device? Or the, or is-
1: the, the, the data that the uh, device is accessing. Okay. Um, so if I've got a, uh, a door camera or I've got a, uh, a web-enabled, cloud-enabled service that's going to print out a visitor badge, some amount of information about that corporate structure is going to be there. Maybe the email address of the person that you're visiting, for example, or the name of the conference room and the attendees in the conference room. What that device needs to have beyond that is rather limited. Got it. And so if you're not segmenting around the expected limitations and capabilities of the device, then you're probably either over restricting yourself or leaving a little bit more of the barn door wide open to the outside world in the event of compromise.
0: Well, one thing that, that's coming off of this is uh, that maybe we can talk about later is that that's come up in two or three comments you've made already, which is the idea of if you're smarter about your, your assets and, and, and if you're smarter about your data, you can avoid overspending on protecting stuff that doesn't need to prote- be protected.
1: That's a very, very fair statement.
0: Yeah. And, and no, but it's not something that, that uh, it, it is, uh, I've heard from a lot of people, and it actually goes to the next question very, very well and you might have a perspective on it that others don't. The next question is about portfolio pruning. You know, I've, well, my research mission on earlyadopter.com is uh, related to cybersecurity, is all about how to prune your cybersecurity portfolio. Or not, not actually how to prune it, but how to create a balanced cybersecurity portfolio. And uh, it partially it addresses the idea of where you need the most strength, you know, which is related to your, your idea. But uh, it also, is what I've been searching for and haven't found is the mechanisms and the ideas that you would use to actually identify when you can prune a cybersecurity capability. When does a new capability replace an old capability? And so far in the history of cybersecurity, it's only been additive. We've got every layer of cybersecurity has added new capabilities, and very few of those capabilities have replaced earlier capabilities. Um, and so, what you you know, your your perspective might offer some new ideas about how would you go about determining when you can prune and reduce or replace a cybersecurity portfolio because you know the, some of the components are no longer needed.
1: So that's a fantastic question and gets at the heart of a lot of customer conversations that I have. So I spend a fair amount of my time in the container adoption microservices adoption space. And one of the key problems that I keep uh, running up against is a legacy definition for how things are patched. Um, We've patched a virtual machine this way. We've patched physical servers this way. We do the same thing from a desktop perspective. And now there's corporate governance around things like I'm going to use this tool to shell into uh, the virtual machine and I'm going to run the update mechanism that's present for the OS and so forth. But from a container perspective, being able to shell into a running container is effectively opening up a security hole that doesn't need to exist. And for me, the question then becomes, what are the security capabilities? What do you get that's additive out of making a transformation from your existing business paradigm when it comes to software development and deployment to this new thing that you might be trying to get uh, to, whether that's a container or microservices or uh, even say a unikernel strategy. That that, uh, those new technologies should be giving you a greater security posture as opposed to just uh, faster development or greater visibility as important as those things might be.
0: but So what you're saying is that if you can move to a landscape in which security is more built-in you might need fewer you know ways of observing for bad security.
1: Correct and so you can actually get um, instead of uh, a blacklist model you can get to a whitelist model. This microservice only ever acts on this data that's only ever going to come from this location. So then why don't I, within the container orchestration solution, define a network that only allows for that to happen? And anything else by definition is considered malicious and damaging in some capacity. Got it. And then the-, the, the But no- in order to
0: do that, you have to understand your environment much better than most people do.
1: Correct. Correct, you, you really truly have to go down the path of uh, having a level of feedback and communication between the development requirements and the operational requirements that is the holy grail of a DevOps type movement, and not just have that from within the organization, but have that with vendor supplied components as well.
0: When do you think that we will get to, oh, the, the third question I wanna ask is, uh, how fast the migration of cybersecurity componentry will happen to the cloud? And so, of course, you know, when you look at you know, the spending now on cybersecurity, you st- the bulk of the spending still is on on-premise installed devices. Mm-hmm. Those devices are increasingly have a cloud component, whether it's a machine learning, you know, or some other sh- information sharing to make them work better. But if you turned off the Internet, they still would work. They'd still work on-premise. And um, if you don't have access to the outside Internet, they would still work. So, uh, how what's going to how is the, the the migration to the cloud going to happen of, of cybersecurity componentry or is it really just the same as you know the, the migration of, the, of cybersecurity to the cloud will be equivalent to the migration of the computing infrastructure to the cloud it'll just follow the computing infrastructure and when we no longer have on-premise stuff then we'll no longer have on-premise cybersecurity.
1: So for me, it's actually more a question of risk. So. On-prem, I can go and I can define my risk. I may not like the result of that definition, uh, but I can define it. I know the performance levels of my cybersecurity teams. I know the performance levels of my development and my application, my monitoring teams, and so forth. I know their ability to react. So if a new uh, vulnerability is disclosed in something today, I know roughly how long it's going to take them to identify it in whatever my kit looks like. Um, and I also have tooling that's going to give me a data feed uh, so I can go and tune up my perimeter defenses. As that infrastructure migrates into a cloud service, be it an Amazon, an Azure, or somebody else, um, effectively what you're doing is you're doing a transfer of risk. And as you move to cybersecurity in the cloud, you're also doing a transfer of risk. So if from the inside world, I can create the moral equivalent of an outage within a, uh, a cloud-based security solution, what does that actually mean to my overall visibility? And do I effectively end up in a scenario that's the equivalent of uh, someone cutting the hardline wire to my old school uh, security system in my facility and then throwing a rock through the window? Do I have that gap in visibility? The net result being that we should always be asking questions around what happens when? because the winds are going to become realities at some point
0: got it so you, what you're saying is that the the tra- the migration of cybersecurity in the cloud the important thing to think about is how is the risk changing as you move those assets exactly it's not really whether or not you know this the the assets will be the, the cybersecurity assets will be wherever they need to be but what you also need to do is understand um, when uh, if, if you have greater or, or smaller risk when the, when, the, when the system moves. And it could be either way.
1: and It definitely could be either way. Um, a good example of the risk potentially increasing to an application owner uh, is serverless. So if I go and I move something into a Lambda function, effectively what I'm saying is that Amazon, you're going to manage the virtual infrastructure, you're going to manage the container environment, you're going to run, manage my uh, runtime environment, and I'm going to give you this little small snippet of code to go and do that function, whatever it might be. And implicit to that is that Amazon is gonna keep everything up to date for that stack. Up until the point where there's a breaking function and if I'm not aware of what's going on, I could have a critical function end up in a broken state because of the security update. And if this was now an on-prem environment, I would have actually been able to test that full stack and recognize it ahead of the game.
0: Right. So you're saying it's not necessarily we have greater risk, it's just you have opaque. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. Okay, so I don't, I'll only be able to go to one bonus question, <laughs> and that is about ops discipline. It seems to me that most of the CISOs I talk to, and most of the vendors I talk to, all agree that uh, they would be better off spending more on operational discipline, uh, and you know, improving their configuration management, patch management, asset inventories, audit levels of automation in their environment than they would be on yet another piece of cybersecurity componentry. But, you know, it it seems like it's really hard for people to actually act that way. Do you think that uh, operational discipline would be a good investment for most, you know, uh, environments that you run into?
1: Uh, I would definitely agree. Um, And I kind of put it down to, if I go back to patch management as an example, if I don't know exactly what I have within that data center operations team, be it on-prem or cloud, I can't possibly patch it. If I don't know what my dependencies are, I can't possibly uh, monitor for them. And so effectively today, a modern application is a amalgam of custom code, some open source libraries, some third-party APIs, and a bunch of configuration metadata if that uh, third-party API goes down for some reason, what's the impact? And how would I actually manage and monitor for it? Um, Does that have a phone home mechanism in it in some way? So effectively, do I now end up in a regulatory uh, morass that I don't want to be in because I've deployed that component in, say, a healthcare environment or uh, under a GDPR-managed scenario, and now there's the potential for data going out that we just didn't know about and so having a visibility level that says this is what i have then feeds into being able to increase that operational discipline because now they know what they should be looking at and then marrying that back with the speed at which things are deployed and then from there determining what their runbooks should be uh, for patch operations updates and scalability
0: Got it. Again, it just it, it just seems like the expanding awareness allows you to be more sophisticated and more effective.
1: Exactly. And then, by extension, ensure that you don't overspend on tooling that you already have an effective enough solution for.
0: Okay. Well, this is great. Right. Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Dan.